So we're in Romans 11. We're going to be in 13 all the way to 24 tonight, but we're going to start out with 13 to 16 and just take it chunk by chunk by chunk. I didn't want to put that entire text on the screen because the font would be like 0.5 from your perspective. So I made it big enough that you'll be able to follow along. This is about the size. Some of the text that I reference will be a bit smaller, but this is about it. So if you want to turn to Romans in your Bible, please do. We're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 11. Now, there's only two more messages in Romans 11, tonight's and next week's, and then we jump into the practical section of the book. Paul takes 11 chapters to dig into the theology, into the doctrine, into the gospel, and what it means and how it plays out. And then in chapter 12, Paul launches into, okay, now that you have the theology, now that you have the doctrine, now that I've opened up the gospel, here's how you should live in light of it. And so chapters 12 all the way to 16 is going to be heavy, heavy application. And I know some of you are very practical people. You're, you're less, you know, maybe logical and argument and following lines of reasoning for chapters and chapters. Your section is coming in two weeks. So hang in there. Okay. And uh, I, I, the longer I'm a pastor, uh, the more I like the practical sections. Uh, it'll be eight years in July now that I've been a lead pastor, and I love the practical sections of the Bible, where before, when I was not a pastor, they seemed to be like throwaway to me. I know that's terrible to say about the Bible, but it was like, let's get the theology, and let's make sure you understand the doctrine, and let's, let's debate if you don't understand it and believe it like I believe it, where now I'm much more interested that you live out the doctrine and not just know it. I want you to know it, but I also want you to live it, because James says, it's about doing the word, not just hearing the word, right? All right, so let's dig in. Uh, Romans 11, 13 to 16. Let's start here. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, as we press into this section, Paul is continuing to open up the, the question what about Jewish unbelief? What about ethnic Israel's rejection of Jesus, their promised Messiah? How do we understand that? And so he's continuing to dig this question, and he's now speaking to the Gentiles about the Gentiles, and he's talking to them in light of Jewish rejection of Jesus. And so that's kind of the context here. And he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. All right, listen up, non-Jewish people in the church at Rome who are hearing this original letter written. Now, we've taken a long time to get to this point. Can you imagine the whole letter of Romans read in one sitting? No verses, no chapter divisions, just word after word after paragraph after paragraph after chapter after chapter. I mean, I can't imagine being able to take in even an eighth of it, let alone the whole thing. 
But here we go. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. You can imagine. Okay, we've been talking to Jews in the room and now Gentiles. Okay, that's me. I'm listening. What do you, what do you got to say, Paul? And he says, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now, how many of you played with magnifying glasses when you were a kid? You ever burn ants or crickets? Hopefully not larger pets like cats and dogs and kittens and puppies. Sickos out there. I know there's some of you. So magnify, to magnify is to take a, a glass that takes small things and under that glass makes them look bigger. Okay? Now, that's not the image here, but what Paul is saying is he magnifies his ministry. He is all about his call to the Jewish people. Or I'm sorry, to the Gentiles. But it's for the sake of the Jewish people. Look at uh, verse 14. I magnify my ministry in order. That's a so that. Why do you magnify your ministry, Paul? Why do you exalt in it? in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. He magnifies his mission to the Gentiles in order to prayerfully, somehow, he says, he doesn't know how, it's got to be by God's doing, to make them jealous so that something will happen and thus save some of them. And so here, I want to show you just a few cross-references. In the beginning of Romans... Chapter 1, 5 to 7, this is the introduction. This is what Paul said about himself. Through whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That word nations is ethnos. What word in English do we get from ethnos? Ethnicities. Okay, it's translated nations. It's translated peoples. In the King James, sometimes heathens. (laughs) But the idea is all ethnicities other than Jewish, Gentiles. And so he says, I am seeking to bring obedience of faith to all the ethnicities outside of the Jewish people. That's my mission. And then look at verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome, Jew and Gentile. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus on the road to uh, Damascus in Acts 9, and he is radically converted. In that conversion, a man named Ananias is told to go and pray for a man named Saul from Tarsus who is blinded by this vision of Jesus. You are going to pray for him, and you are to, uh, by your prayer, God is going to heal him. I'm going to heal him, Paul, and I'm going to give him sight. And Ananias protests, I know who this man is. He is sent to destroy your church and to hunt Christians and throw them into prison. Uh, this is uh, an ambush. And then God answers, Jesus answers Ananias. But the Lord said to him in response, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So God, Jesus, had in mind a mission for Paul. You are going to go to the Gentiles and kings and who? The children of Israel. But look look at the order. Gentiles, kings, and then the Jews, the people of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And man, did Paul suffer for the sake of the name. In city after city, after beating, after beating, after imprisonment, after imprisonment. But he did show up before governors and kings and the emperor himself to proclaim the gospel. And so Paul did fulfill his ministry and he was beheaded. Second uh, Timothy is the last letter we have from Paul. And shortly after Second Timothy was penned, Paul's head was removed by the Roman emperor. And he's still in Rome to this day. So Paul here says, I I magnify this ministry that was given me, this mission that was given me by Jesus himself. However, my aim, though I magnify this ministry to the Gentiles, my hope, my aim is that my fellow Jews, my people would be saved. Now, is it wrong to want your own people to be saved? Is that wrong? Like if you know your ethnicity and you're committed to them, are you being racist if if you want them to be saved? No, I didn't think so. I just wanted to check you on that, okay? And so Paul here saying like, look, I'm for all people groups, but I really want to see my people get saved. It's like St. Patrick, right? No, actually he was English. We could talk about him another time. I don't got time for that right now. So in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, for if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, uh, theologians and commentators love to dig into, you know, debatable texts. And this is one of those ones that no one agrees on, but everyone has opinions on. Their question is, what does it mean, or what does Paul mean here by life from the dead? What does he mean? So 15 is this. If Jewish rejection means that the Gentiles get in on the promises of God to the old covenant, and then they're in the new covenant because the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. So if they get in on all the Jewish promises by rejection of the Jewish people, then the question is, What will their acceptance mean? What happens when the Jewish people actually accept Jesus and see him as the Messiah and are saved? What will that look like? It will look like life from the dead. Now, here's the two. If if we could boil all the opinions down, here would be the two. It's either talking about spiritual life because Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. So there's a spiritual resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's a possibility. It could mean Jewish spiritual life where now there is Jewish spiritual death. That's one option. The second option is actual physical resurrection, life from the dead. It's like Ezekiel's dry bones. You remember that Old Testament story where Ezekiel, the prophet, sees this valley of dry, dead skeletons, and he is to speak to them, and all of a sudden flesh starts coming upon the bones and skin, and they stand up, and they're this army, and God breathes into them, and life happens. Resurrection. So whichever one you take, I don't think either are technically wrong. You won't be in heresy if you take either opinion. Uh, Your study guide is going to lean physical resurrection, which is fine. Uh, But it could be either, truly. So if if the Jewish people believe in Jesus, you know what's going to happen? 
They're going to be spiritually made alive. And then you know what happens if they're spiritually made alive at the great resurrection? They're going to be physically resurrected. Both are true, actually. It's just, which one does Paul have in mind here? We don't know for sure. And that's okay. So when you're studying the Bible, friends, here's a little hermeneutic help. Okay, Hermeneutics means the art and science of biblical interpretation. When you come upon texts that are hard to understand, it's like, well, what did he mean? Well, if the context doesn't immediately give you the answer, but there's other texts that allude to an answer, but there's multiple texts that could apply to give you the answer, then it's okay to say, well, this one is biblical, and this one is biblical, and this one is biblical. And you don't technically have to choose one. Okay? So either one is okay. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if, if I have my eschatology right, which just means the end times, the, the things of the end, then I believe that there is a coming time, and I'm, I'm, I'm digging into the sermon for next week, so I'm sorry. This is just a preview. Okay? There's coming a time when the last chosen Gentile, the, the last one who from before the foundation of the world, God said, this one, maybe South America, maybe in uh, Bolivia, maybe in Pittsburgh, maybe in California. Who knows where this last Gentile is? But when that last Gentile believes, there is going to be a mass revival of ethnic Jewish people who are believing in Jesus. And when that happens, it's a signal, man, this thing's wrapping up. We are almost done with this current stage in human history. And the great resurrection is right upon us. You do realize that the Bible says, both in Old and New Testament, that every single person who has passed away will rise again. Now, there's about 8 billion people on the planet right now, but that's just in 2022. The earth has been filled with billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of people throughout its history. So we're talking about untold billions of people who will rise all at once for the great resurrection and the great judgment. Some will rise to eternal death. Some will rise to eternal life. And that's all dependent on what you do with Jesus Christ. Do you give yourself over to him as Lord and Savior? Do you bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. He is God alone, whom he claimed to be, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Will you confess your sins and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? If you will do that, you will be resurrected to life. This is the good news. But those who reject Jesus, those who stiff arm his offer of salvation or say, there are many ways to please God. There are many ways to heaven. There are many paths that lead to eternal life. Well, not according to Jesus. Though it's narrow, Jesus himself said, I'm the only way. And so he's either lying or he's being truthful. And friends, if he's lying, why trust him about anything else? If he's lying about being the only way to God and you think that's just, well, maybe he thinks that, but that's not really the way it is. Then why in the world would you trust him on anything else he says? That's my question. But if he's not lying and he's telling the truth, that means that everyone who is believing in other ways have it wrong. 
And you know what else that means? That means you believing in Jesus as the only way. That means you have no grounds to boast because the New Testament makes it clear that if you believe, you were given that belief as a gift. Isn't that good news? That those who believe are given the gift of belief or faith. And so no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a famous text. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Exchange faith with belief. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. And so if there's mass Jewish unbelief right now, yeah, that's on them. But if there's Gentile belief and even some Jewish belief, no grounds for boasting. Why? Because it's a gift from God. And so what do we do with friends who are unbelieving right now? We pray for them and we share the good news and we do it with winsomeness, with gentleness and with respect and with persistence And listen, friends, there is no reason for you to jam Jesus down anyone's throat because if you do, they will choke on him and they will not believe based on how skilled of a crammer you are. You cannot corner people into believing Jesus. It will not work. I have had people when I was in my cramming days, you know, like, come here, you know, you're not leaving until you confess Jesus. And they're like, all right, I believe in Jesus. And then they're like, you know, and they run away and you never see them again. All right, one story. This is my only story, the whole, the whole sermon, I promise. As you know, I used to do hip-hop ministry. Many of you know this, right? And so I would go in to do a show and I would have my set and then I would share the gospel. And well, I was at this one particular event and it was not awesome. And here's why. They had one guy come in off the streets and it was kind of an open mic situation, which just means if you have skills to do poetry or rap or whatever, you can have the mic for a little bit. Well, this guy was clearly not a Christian by what he was talking about in his raps. And so what did the the promoter of the show and all of his henchmen do? They formed a circle around this guy right after his set was done. They kind of cornered him. And they basically put the mic in his face and they basically forced him to confess Jesus as Lord. And he did. And another convert headed to heaven. I was like, "Mm, I don't know about this. So I I followed the guy outside, just me and him. And I sit down and I'm like, hey man, what do you think happened in there? He's like, man, they were feeling me. They really like me. (laughs) Nothing about Jesus, had no idea about salvation or sin or anything. It was just, man, they clapped when I rapped. Nothing happened, friends. Yet, all those people in the room, maybe not all of them, because I would be one who didn't think so, were thinking, here's another person in the kingdom. Friends, you cannot, we cannot force people to believe in Jesus. You know what you can do, though? You can pray for them, and you can share the good news, and God can save. Isn't that good news? It's actually good news for your soul that you can't save people. Only God can save. But it's your job, it's my job to share the good news, which is Romans 1.16 says, is the power of God into salvation. The only way people will get saved, as Justin preached so well a few weeks ago, is if they hear. They must hear the gospel. 
And you can be that person by which they hear. All right, let's move on. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul's going to use two images here. Number one is an image from the Old Testament about dough. Now, how many of you have baked bread before? Put your hand up high. Don't be ashamed. Oh, a lot of you. That's what's up. Okay. See, it's not just farming rural people who bake bread. That's awesome. I love that. So I've had some freshly baked bread and it is awesome. Like you walk into Panera Bread at like 6.30 a.m. And man, it smells wonderful. You know, they bake everything brand new at Panera Bread every single morning. And every single night you go in there and all this, that day's stuff is loaded up in those clear plastic bags ready for ministries to take. And we have taken many bags from Panera's to do different ministry things. Uh, it's wonderful. So e- every morning when you go in there, just know you're eating fresh bagels, fresh bread, fresh pastries. It's all good. So here, uh, in, in the ancient days when this was written, okay, people would bake bread every single day. Now we, at least I, go to Aldi, go to Giant Eagle. You know, you go to your local supermarket and you're like, oh, there's the bread aisle. That's how we bake bread. We pay a buck or two. It used to be a dollar. Now it's like five. Five dollars a loaf of bread. It's like, what a great deal. It's on sale for four bucks. This is awesome. Here, they would have been familiar with the first fruits illustration. Now, here it is in numbers, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch, first five books, Penta, five, book in five parts. So Moses wrote Numbers, and it's about the law, and it's about uh, how the Jewish people were to operate under theocracy, under God's rule and reign as a newly formed people and newly liberated people from Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, that would be Israel, the promised land. And when you eat of the bread of the land, that means they're going to grow wheat and they're going to take the wheat and they're going to make flour of it and they're going to make bread out of it. When you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the fresh threshing floor. Threshing floor was, they, they would have these uh, situations where you'd have the wheat and you'd pitchfork it up in the air and, and the, the wind would blow away the chaff and the heavy parts of, of uh, grain would fall. The kernels of wheat would fall to the ground and that's how you would harvest your wheat, the threshing floor. And so they were supposed to give some of the wheat and here they're supposed to give some of the dough. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Now, these contributions did many things. One, they were to feed the priests. God was very practical. He was like, all my priests need to eat. Their work is to minister in the temple and to do all the ministry duties. So how are they going to eat? Well, offerings. Not all the offerings, but a lot of them went to the priests and the Levites to eat. But number two, the people were saying, I trust you with the very first of what you bless me with in my field. Now, what's, what's the modern day first fruits for us? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a little bit off your paycheck. I don't know who said that, but that's right. 
So for us, like th- this is my practice. Immediately when my check goes in the bank, the very first thing I do, I jump on the website and I give first fruits, bam. Every time, before taxes. Don't get nervous, don't get sweaty. It's called first fruits, okay? And, and, the, and the New Testament is not silent on how New Testament Christians should give. Hey, now what do we do practically with, with the first fruits? Well, look around. <laughs> all this, everything you see here, all the, the things that we do, all the initiatives of Eternal City Church, you help fund that. But here's, here's the spiritual reality, okay? For the old covenant people and for us, we are saying to God by our first fruits giving, I trust you with this little bit first, and I know that you're going to supply the rest of the harvest and the rest for my needs. Amen? So, so think about this. If everything is God's, every dollar in every bank account, every blade of grass in every yard, every hair on every head, counted, numbered, it's all God's. And so when we give to God by giving to various ministries, including your local church, we're saying to God, all this is yours, and I'm entrusting back to you what you've entrusted to me, showing I trust you to continue to take care of me. Make sense? And amazingly, this is the amazing part, God says, I'll reward you for everything you give. And so uh, there's a great book I would recommend. I read it years ago. It highly influenced me. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Raise your hand if you read that little tiny book. Okay, if you haven't read that book, you need to read that little book. It'll take you a half hour to an hour if you're a fast reader. Here's Randy's main thesis. You can make all kinds of investments here on earth. And I, I would recommend investing. I invest. But whatever you do for God and whatever you give out of your earnings for God's purposes, you are sending up for eternal investment to be kept undefiled, that can't rust, it can't be stolen, and you will have those investments forever. And Jesus said something about this in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Jesus actually encourages us, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay? Now, this is actually not about giving, but the illustration lends itself for me to take a minute or two to talk about giving. So in context here, he's talking about the first fruits of your dough, but here he's talking about the Jewish people. Okay? He says, some of the first fruits of your dough, I'm sorry, I'm back in Romans here. Look, there's some dough. <laughs> it's a nice looking lump of dough there. Okay. This, this, this represents the Jewish people in Romans 11. Okay. Here he says, there it is. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. All right. Now you saw where that came from from numbers. Here's what he's saying. God made the Jewish people out of one man. We've talked about this. What was his name? Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons begin to have massive families that turned into tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 tribes of Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. The 12 families of Jacob. Okay, Israel. And so if, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called specially, uniquely, only, and they are wholly set apart for a special purpose and use, then he's saying the whole, what flowed from them is also holy. Same illustration here, but now using trees, a landscaping illustration. And he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. He says, if, if the roots of the tree are holy, then what flows from the roots, the branches, which then bear fruit, it's also holy. Now, the holiness here does not mean saved. Because his argument throughout this whole Romans 11 is most Jewish people are not saved. But his argument is, listen, don't be arrogant against the Jews and don't think God is done with them. Don't think you're it now and God has just stiff-armed them and buried them. No. No. Because if they were set apart from the forefathers, they're still set apart. And now he'll continue this argument here. So let's, let's keep going. But if some of the branches were broken off, so now he's staying with the roots to branch illustration. If some of the branches were broken off and you, you Gentiles, if you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, so now we learn that the root is actually an olive tree root. And the olive tree is actually not uh, foreign to Scripture. Here it is. In Jeremiah eleven sixteen to 17, God calls Israel an olive tree. The Lord once called you a green olive tree beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, judgment, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you. Why? Because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. This is a judgment for uh, the Jewish people turning against Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Baal. And so he's going to judge them. And here, the illustration of Jeremiah is, you once were an olive tree. Those are olive trees. So olive trees were very prevalent in the Mediterranean world. Okay? How many of you like olives? I'm a big olive fan. I love olives. All kind of olives I love. Uh, the kinds with the peppers in them and garlic in them and black olives, they're all good. So this is an olive grove here, but let's look a little bit more closely. Okay? That's what they look like on a tree. And this represents our illustration right here. Okay? He says, if you being a graft, grafted in to this olive tree that's existing, don't be arrogant. Okay. Now, how many of you have ever done any tree grafting? One person. That is awesome. Two people. That is excellent. I honestly did not expect any hands to go up. So that is fantastic. Love it. You guys are landscapers. Green thumbs. All right. So, so check it out. This is what grafting is. All right. When you have an existing plant or tree 
and you take one from another tree and you make a cut in it, you can put branches in and then the sap from the existing tree begins to feed the foreign branches and they actually begin to grow. Now the practice in Paul's day was that they would take a very healthy olive branch that was producing much. And if they added that to an old olive tree that was struggling, sometimes that new branch would revitalize the tree. Okay. And so this is grafting. Now, believe it or not, I have an accidental graft, a mistake grafted tree in my yard. Did you know that? So this is my yard. This is a picture from my my maple tree. I have a Japanese maple. And did you know those are two different kinds of maples in the same tree? Now, now it was an Aldi buy, right? So you're like, well, of course you bought it from Aldi. <laughs> Who buys trees from Aldi? I do, I guess. And so he, this is, this is it. as it began to grow, I'm like, wait a minute. Those red ones, those marijuana leaf looking ones, that's, that's not the maple tree I'm thinking about. And here, here's what happened. Look right here. This part right here, you can see it's glued. And right here's the existing one. And here's the new one. And this branch gives you those red ones, which are not supposed to be there. <laughs> but man, is it a great illustration for this text or what? It was worth it just for that. So as this tree grows, I'm going to leave it and I'm going to be reminded that I'm the red, right? I'm the red because I'm Gentile. I'm the red ones. And this big old maple tree that's super healthy is the Jewish people. And maybe you'll remember it too. So you will not get arrogant and think you're the tree. Did you know that's where Paul goes next? Look at this. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot. Now, a wild one would be an olive tree that is not purposeful and it's not producing fruit. And this is all through the New Testament. Gentiles were once alienated from God, strangers from the promises, far, far from God, headed for hell. We were not producing any spiritual fruit. And so we are this wild olive shoot. And we're grafted in among the others. And now we share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, Paul, is, he's, this is a great metaphor. Remember, the olive tree is representing Israel and the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. Remember what Paul, or I'm sorry, what God said to Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. All of them, every ethnicity, every tribe, nation, language, people will be blessed in you, Abraham. In fact, Abraham, go out into the starry night, look up, count the stars if you can, so shall your descendants be. Full of every ethnicity from you, Abraham. And we learn from Galatians 3 that we who have the faith of Abraham are sons and daughters of Abraham. This is how we were up in the sky that night, promised to Abraham. Furthermore, Galatians, Paul says, listen, God preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. When? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Meaning from you, Abraham, from your uh, offspring from Judah specifically is going to come one king who is over all the kings, who is Lord over all the lords, and who will be Emmanuel, God with us, and who will substitute himself for the sins of all of his people. That's how 
everyone is blessed in Abraham because Jesus came from the Jewish people, specifically from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Revelation calls him the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so he says, verse 18, don't be arrogant towards the branches. Now, this must have been a problem at Rome. And as Paul traveled throughout the churches, he must have sensed this. There was a Gentile arrogance brewing that, well, God's done with Israel. Those branches are broken off. I'm grafted in. That's the argument that happens. Look at verse 19. Then you will say, Paul's imaginary debater shows back up again. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. See the quotes? Someone's saying that. Paul's answer, that's true. They were broken off. But why? Because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. They were broken off because they didn't believe in Jesus. You are grafted in because you believe. Now that's important to where he goes next. So do not become proud. Don't be arrogant, but rather fear. Hmm. So here, the opposite of being proud is being fearful. But it's not fearful in the way that you think. Okay? I do think that the fear of the Lord has an element of trembling in it. But I think it's more like deep respect for something very dangerous. I don't know how many of you have ever held a loaded, unsafetyed gun with a hair trigger. But I have. And what you don't do with that is just, hey, guys, look at that. <laughs> because there's a healthy fear of that thing. What you don't do with a brand new razor that you just took out of the pack is, I wonder if this is sharp. No, you hold that thing very carefully when you're loading that into the cutter. And I've not been careful and paid the price. <laughs> and so it, it's fear in a way of like, this could really hurt me if I'm not careful with it. Friends, the God of the universe can disintegrate your molecules. <laughs> Don't play with them. That's the point. But amazingly, this most powerful being, omnipotent, we say about him, omnipotent, all-powerful. There is no power greater than him, and all lesser powers find their source in him. How many of you have ever run wires of electricity in your house? How many of you have ever accidentally found a spark? Me too. I was one of those foolish kids when your parents said, don't stick things in the outlet. I was like, well, I wonder why. Okay? And, and so, yes, I got a butter knife. Insert into plug. What happens? Blue spark and poof. thankfully it blew my hand back and didn't blow it off or get stuck to it. Needless to say, I've never done that again. And so maybe what we should do is tell kids to try it once. Hey, just try it once. That's all you'll need. You'll never do it again. This is why they won't let me teach the kids. <laughs> kids, today we're going to learn about electricity. No, man. Thankfully, it wasn't the 220 line, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right so i have no idea what i was just talking about i'm lost i'm lost 
Fear, fear. So we fear things that can harm us, but electricity used in the right way is helpful. A gun used in the right way can save your life. Razor blades that are sharp are a very helpful tool. Okay? But you must fear it or respect it. Use it what it's used for and don't play with it. In the same way, this is what he's saying. Look, don't be arrogant, but fear. Fear. Why? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. All right. Now that's an interesting line. Because it seems like what it's saying is contradictory to what we learned in the end of chapter 8 and chapter 9, which is once you believe in Jesus, you are eternally saved. You can't be unsaved. Once you're spiritually alive, you can't be made spiritually dead. Once you're found, you can't be lost again. That is biblical. And so what in the world is he saying here in verse 21? If God did not spare the natural branches, then neither will he spare you. Well, the last three verses tell us. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. That'd be the branches broken off, the Jewish people. But kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, you remember from Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. Right. And so God's kindness has met us. We've turned from our sin. We've turned to Jesus. We are believers and now what, what are we being urged to do? Continue in that kindness that leads us to what? Repentance. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said in his 95 thesis, number one, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. This is the game we're playing. Christians play the repentance game, meaning we repent again and again and again. Because we sin again and again and again. And when we repent and when we ask for forgiveness, what do we receive? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. God gives us from his endless supply of mercy and grace. That's what he does. And so here, what does he say? Otherwise, you will be cut off. So what's the otherwise? The otherwise is pointing to if you do not continue in the kindness. Okay? There is a warning here that friends, we who find ourselves in Jesus right now must persevere. Okay? Persevere. That means you continue to believe. You continue to trust. You refuse to walk away. You don't give up and give in. You persevere. You don't give in. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus speaking here says this, My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. And they will never, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, omnipotent, all-powerful. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so he's saying here that we must continue to believe. Here's, here's how it works, friends. 
From God's perspective, he is holding on to you. You cannot be dropped by God. Practically, you must continue in the faith. Practically, you must not give up. Practically, you must continue to believe, continue to hold on to God, all the while knowing he is holding on to you. Now, here's what I want to show you. All through the New Testament, we have what can seem to be texts that maybe contradict that once we are in Christ, we cannot be lost. Here's one in Colossians, and, and then I'm done after this, okay? Last one. Paul says to the church at Colossae this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, who is that? Gentiles. Put your hand up. That's you. Hey? <laughs> you, Gentiles, who were uh, Colossians, this was a uh, um, east of Ephesus, going into Asia. This is the church of Colossae. Hey, Epaphras planted this church. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that he is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We're saved by Jesus' death on the cross. In order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Look at this. If indeed you continue in the faith. Notice that 23 there. Only if. So all that verse 22 there is true of you if, if something happens. And the if is if you continue in the faith. What does that look like? Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You don't move from the gospel. And if you don't, then 22 is you, reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach. Here's what you have to think about, friends. All these ifs, if you continue, if you continue in the kindness, all these are the means by which God keeps us. What do you mean? You are supposed to feel a little uneasy when you read texts like this. And they are meant to spur you on towards continued trust and belief and repentance. That's why in Romans 11, he says, you shouldn't be arrogant. Rather, you should fear. That's a means to keep you believing. So when you read texts that make you feel a little nervous, like... One day, there will be a great separation of sheep and goats, and I'll say to those on my left, away from me, for I never knew you. You should feel a little afraid when you read that. Because you should think, I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person who he says, and to my sheep, enter in to the joy that I've prepared before you before the foundation of the world. That's what you want to hear. And so these texts that are warning texts are the means by which God keeps us persevering. You need to see that. If you can get that clear in your mind, then when you read the texts that seem to say you can lose your salvation, you'll understand these are the warnings, these are the means by which God keeps his people persevering. You with me? Good. All right, let's finish. And even if they, verse 23... If they do not continue in their unbelief, the Jewish people, if they don't stay unbelieving, if they actually believe, they will be grafted in. 
So if they begin to have faith, they'll be grafted back into the olive tree like we have been grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, Gentiles, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, not producing fruit, alienated from the covenant, lost in the world, and grafted contrary to nature. Now, now here's what that means. Contrary to nature means this. No one in their right mind would take a branch that is wild and not producing fruit and then stick it on a healthy, good olive tree. I'm not going to do that. It's contrary to nature. And so... Paul's like, I understand this is not done, but this is what God did to you, Gentiles. He grafted you in, though you were a wild olive tree. It's contrary to nature. No one does this. Into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now he's saying if they don't continue in unbelief, but they believe, God will graft them right back onto that root, that promise to Abraham in you, Will all the nations be blessed, including the nation of Israel? And so what's the takeaway before we take communion? Friends, I really want you and I pray you to persevere. Friends, I don't know if you keep up on what's happening in the Christian culture, if there is such a thing, but we have defection left and right, left and right, people leaving the faith. The popular term is deconstructing. Oh, I'm deconstructing my faith. You mean you're leaving Christ. That's what you mean. You're walking away. You're not continuing in his kindness. That's what you mean. Now, if you're wrestling with some doctrine, that's another thing. Friends, persevere. Don't leave Jesus, whatever you do. Cling to him. Ask brothers and sisters to pray for you. Confess your doubts to one another. It doesn't mean you can't doubt. Did you know that the name Israel literally means wrestle with God? And Israel was the name of God's old covenant people. And yes, there is a sense in which the new covenant people are the new Israel. We don't replace Israel as an ethnic group or as as God's formerly chosen people. We don't replace them. But there is a sense in which the New Testament church is the new Israel. It's true. And so we are ones who now wrestle with God. I know you've bumped up against things in your life. You've either seen them, you've read them, or experienced them that made you think, God, what in the world are you doing? Yes and amen? That's called wrestling with God. We wrestle with him, but we don't leave him. Friends, don't leave. Don't walk away. Grab a hold of a brother and sister. Ask them to pray for you. Ask your pastors the hard questions. We read an incredible amount of books for a reason. We wrestle with hard questions all the time. We counsel people week in and week out. Take advantage of the means that God has given you to persevere your shepherds. You have a bookstore full of apologetic material. Friends, listen, there's no reason for you to walk away from Christ. If you're doubting, tell somebody, ask them to pray for you, and let's drill into that specific place of doubt, and let's see if we can resolve that. Amen? And let's have hope and pray for the Jewish people that they will be grafted back in, because the Bible says that's going to happen. And so if you know some Jewish people, maybe you could pray for them specifically and ask that they might be those ones who get grafted back in. And maybe God will use your sharing of the gospel to save them. Wouldn't that be amazing?
So we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. And according to the images in this text, what Jesus has done is he has made a way for us to be grafted into the olive tree of God's promises of salvation, of eternal life, of the blessing of knowing Yahweh, the God who is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the most high God. We know him personally. Isn't it amazing that if some devout other religion walks up to you and says, do you know about God? You can in truth say to them, no, I don't know about God. I know God. I know him personally. I talk to him regularly. He talks to me regularly. We have a real relationship. It's beyond knowing about God. I know him. And so friends, if you know him tonight, you only know him by way of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And this is why we celebrate communion to celebrate what Jesus accomplished, that we might know God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing, and I'll come back out and lead us all in taking communion. So please hold your elements until we have sung, and we'll worship together by taking communion. Amen. What a great song. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. So what we hold in our hands is not magical. It's not even mystical. It's a representation of a reality that Jesus' body was broken about 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. His blood was poured out, foreshadowed through all the Old Testament sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins for everyone and anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus to save them. Friends, we have great hope, great steadiness, great grounding in Christ. Don't leave him. Where else will you go to find life? There is no life anywhere else. And so we hold in our hands a representation of life and life eternal ours by what Jesus accomplished. So let us celebrate Jesus' body broken and bloodshed together as one church. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus in our place. Father, we thank you for before the foundation of the world, choosing us to be holy and blameless in your sight, to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, we thank you for this reminder weekly of what Jesus accomplished so that we would not try to accomplish ourselves, that we would not try to earn your favor by our good deeds or not doing the wrong things, God, but we thank you that Jesus has already won the victory for us. We're safe in him. Father, would you grow us? I pray for anyone who's struggling, who's doubting, who's wrestling. God, meet them in that wrestle, in that struggle. May they not walk away from you. Keep them, I pray. Keep them persevering. Keep them clinging to Jesus. And God, would we never become arrogant? 
would we never become prideful, but rather would we walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. God, would we love you and hold you in honor and magnify your name. Hallow your name, we pray. Father, it's in Jesus' name we give you thanks and praise. And we pray, go with us throughout the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, everyone said?